Good evening. Uh, I bring you greetings from the Saints of Grace Family Baptist Church in Conroe. It's, it's a great honor uh, to be here uh, to share in this occasion. It's a wonderful thing to hear and to learn of godly churches being established in various places, and especially it's exciting to see Reformed Baptist churches, confessional Baptist churches being planted. And then even more, it's exciting to actually be there to see it. And brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to be here this evening in, in a very real and tangible way to participate. In, and according to your places and callings, your, your participation may be simply praying. It may be giving. It may be one of the ones up here laying hands on our brother and sending him out. It may be the one who labors side by side with him, shares his home and cares for his children. We all have a part to play. I asked Todd, asked Pastor Todd several weeks ago, did he have something in mind for me to preach? Or was, and, and really, to whom should I be preaching? Was this to preach as a charge to our brother Wilson? Was it to preach as a charge to the sending congregation? Was it to preach to a charge to those who were going to be laboring in the work? And he said, yes, all of that. So I will do my best to accomplish that. And I gave some thought. We, we planted Grace Family Baptist Church in Conroe in March of 2010. So 13 and almost 13 and a half years ago. And I, I was giving some thought over the last few weeks in terms of what would I have liked to have heard if I could go back and, and think about the things that I would like to have, have had pressed upon me? And then I realized to answer that question would be far more than one sermon. But it really is, it boils down to this. To be exhorted to trust that God's means minister to his people patiently, faithfully, steadfastly will bear fruit. And we are tempted at every point to give up on that. To think, well, there's got to be something more, more effective, something quicker, or something that will keep me out of trouble as much as I'm getting into now. But brothers, Brother Wilson... And I know you have many uh, seasoned brothers here who will be able to encourage you and exhort you to keep your hand to the plow. But the question I want to seek to answer this evening under the title, The Labor and the Hope of the Church Planter, is, is really what is the nature of having our hand to this plow? What is the nature of this work? The work of pastoring the work of planting a church, which is simply pastoring in a new place without an existing structure, but it's still pastoring. What does this look like? If you would turn with me to the book of Titus. I asked the brothers earlier this week to have Titus 1 read, and I will reference that in the sermon, but our emphasis will be primarily on Titus chapter 2. And I'm going to operate under this supposition that many of you have a wrong understanding of Titus 2 because it's in the evangelical air we breathe is something that's actually contrary to the very point that Paul is making here. 
And I think if we will take the time to understand Paul's instruction to Titus, it will be a great encouragement whether you are a preacher or a hearer. So let's hear together God's word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, teachers of good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opportunity may be put to shame, or so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, but no one disregard you. May we pray together, please? Our God and our Father, we ask now for the sake of the glory of your Son and for the good of your people that you will send your Spirit to give us light and understanding of your Word. I pray that you will grant to us the grace to be conformed more and more together to the very image of your Son as we hear and believe and obey the word of Christ. Minister to us this evening as we seek to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your instruction by your power and for your glory. We ask this. Amen. Titus chapter 1 sets before us, if we think about the labor and the hope of a church planter, Titus chapter 1 sets before us the great need for church planting. What we find here under the apostle's instruction is a letter written to his young protege, and he has apparently left Titus behind in a place called Crete, a place that was, shall we say, notorious in certain respects. Crete was known by Paul's own testimony as he, create, he quotes from their own prophets, a place that was a difficult field in which to minister. It was a place marked by lawlessness, a place marked by false teaching. 
And I'm not, I'm not referencing this in any way to compare Wichita Falls to Crete. That's not the point. But it isn't any better. It isn't any worse. In any city to whom we would minister, we're going to find, at least in part, these various characteristics. We're going to look at, consider some of the problems. And again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give an exposition of chapter one, but we just had it read in our hearing. There were false teachers among the churches at Crete. The churches were not in, in complete order yet. Many of them lacked pastors. They, there was much confusion about the distinction between the law and the gospel. Those were teaching for the law of God, something that wasn't the law of God. We had men leading who were unqualified both doctrinally and morally. And that produced the inevitable ill fruit. Paul uses this, this word sound over and over again, sound doctrine or healthy doctrine. And he contrasts that with what was going on in Crete. There was unsound, unhealthy doctrine, and it produces what it always produces, unsound and unhealthy people. And there were perhaps even certain cultural tendencies that produced a sort of headwind against gospel living. We see in verse 12, for example, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. There was something perhaps even culturally there in Crete that produced an even more difficult situation. Crete was not a place completely unreached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like so many places here in as what's known as the buckle of the Bible belt, it is not that the cities are unreached wholly by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But there are many false teachers. There are many who are teaching things that they don't understand. There are many who don't understand the difference between the law and the gospel. There are many whose lives don't match up with what they teach. There are many Christians who don't even know that they're sitting under unsound teaching. So the work of planting Reformed Baptist churches is a necessity. Even in a place in which you might find churches on almost every corner. I understand in another place, Paul's stated desire to say he wanted to preach the gospel where no man had preached it previously. I understand that. On one hand, he, he wanted to exalt the name of Christ, to promote the name of Christ, to proclaim the name of Christ where no one had heard it before. But not only that, I think Paul was a reasonable man, a, a practical man, not a pragmatist, but a practical man. He understood the difficulty of sowing gospel seed in fields that had already been salted by false teaching. He understood that. Brother Marsh Say this to you, to the saints of, of Waco family, and to those who will labor alongside you. You will not be the first city or first church in the city of Wichita Falls. There are other churches, there are other true churches there. But we also know there are other churches who are teaching unsound doctrine. There are various ministries, there are persons, there are individuals, men and women. Many there who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but many more will be there who have heard a different gospel, which is no gospel 
at all. They will have heard just enough of the true gospel, in a sense, to be inoculated against it. And, and again, my point is not to make a comparison between ancient Crete and Wichita Falls, Texas. That's not my, my point. There are differences and there are similarities, I'm, I'm sure. But the point is to emphasize the need for sober and honest assessment. There needs to be a realistic expectation as you endeavor to start this work. For those of you who are sending out and praying for our brother Wilson, will you adopt a sober mind as you contemplate, as you hear reports? Do not, do not fall into the temptation to think, well, the work isn't progressing quickly enough, or it's not progressing in the way that we thought it would. Recognize that the work will be difficult there. The point is to recognize the pressing need for a church in which sound doctrine is taught. My point is to exhort our brother and all support, who support the work to discern the true need of this work. And the reading of the law earlier was from Nehemiah chapter 8. And I came close when Brother Jeff Powers had asked me earlier this week if there were scripture passages to read. I almost had him read from Nehemiah chapter 2. It's one of my favorite scenes in all of the Bible. Nehemiah has been sent first by God and then with letters from the king to pass through foreign lands with certificates to buy timber and all that he needs to build to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But he had not yet told anyone in Jerusalem what his purpose was. And chapter 2 opens with this scene of the, the opposition. They, they've already heard that some good work is coming, and they were opposed to any good on behalf of Israel. Sanballat and Tobiah. As you read that, you can almost hear like a Darth Vader theme song. And then later on, others would join with them. And Nehemiah takes off, he says, with just a few men with him and his own beast. And he surveys the city in the middle of the night. And I think, what, was, what must that scene have been like? There were places where the, the, the ruins were so bad, Nehemiah could not even get his animal through. And I've often wondered, wouldn't it have been easier to go about 10 miles down the road and start with a fresh parcel of ground and build there? Wouldn't it have been easier without having to clear away all the rubble of the walls that had been built with fire to deal with the morale of the people who remembered the former grandeur of the city? Church planting has much in common with that. You're building in a place where churches have existed before. Doctrinally speaking, there's going to be some rubble you're going to have to deal with. And it's going to require a sense of, of sober reflection upon what is the need here and what are the true, what's the true nature of those challenges. But I don't want to leave us there, and Paul doesn't leave Titus there. He doesn't leave him with a bleak picture. He then charges him to a certain labor, a certain kind of labor. We see this in chapter 2. Chapter 2 begins with, but. But as... For you, because the question comes if Crete was this bad, if the, if the situation were this bleak, what hope does he have? What's the remedy? 
I mean, you have people languishing under false teaching. You've got all kinds of, of, of sick people producing sick fruit from unsound doctrine. What's the remedy for that? What hope is there for a city shrouded in such darkness? We find the answer in chapter 2. But as for you. See, that, that little phrase is, is a heavy contrast with what he's presented in chapter 1. There are those who have devoted themselves to all kinds of myths. They've turned away from the truth. They're impure. They profess to know God. They deny him, but they deny him by his works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. But as for you, Titus, but as for you. And I think Paul's charge here is make it your aim, Titus, to preach and to teach and to minister to every corner of the congregation. Minister to every soul in the congregation. Take it as your own pastoral duty, whether older men, younger men, older women, younger women, you, Titus, bear the responsibility of teaching them, of ministering to them, of serving them. Look what he says here. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, that, that phrase has appeared already in the introduction in chapter 1, in that very first paragraph. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. It means it comports with, it's suitable, it, it's consistent with. And I'm persuaded that Titus 2 is one of the most misused passages in contemporary evangelicalism. I'm, I'm more persuaded by this probably every year that goes by. It's misused because it's misread. Sometimes intentionally. Whether intentionally or not, though, we're often take the point that Paul makes. In fact, he gives an imperative here to Titus to minister to the whole congregation, and we turn that 180 degrees and say it's a mandate to fracture the congregation and to have them minister to separately by untrained and unqualified people. That's 180 degrees opposed to what Paul is actually saying, and I'll show you why. Let me answer first by giving a brief description of what I think Paul's imperative is. What's the nature of the ministry that Paul lays upon Titus? And then I'm going to contrast with that with how the passage is, is commonly understood, at least in a contemporary sense, that's in an opposite way, what Paul intends. And, and then I'm going to show you from the, from the flow of the text, there's a logical argument and then also a textual argument that I want to show you. First, what's Paul's point? What, what's the nature of this command? And, and it's this, to embrace the responsibility as a pastor to preach and teach and minister and serve every corner of the congregation. Make it your goal, Titus. Make it your goal, Wilson. Make it your goal, David, to preach and teach and minister to each and every soul that the Lord Jesus Christ gathers under your care. Make it your goal, Titus, to teach to the young and to the old, both men and women, the precious truths of Holy Scripture press these in upon them so that they will begin to bear fruit because God has created them for good works. 
Don't leave this task to others not qualified to do so. And in the face of all the various pressures, remember what was going on in Crete? Do you think Titus would be tempted to play a sort of game of whack-a-mole with all the various errors and difficulties and challenges? Paul says, keep your eye on the command that I've given to you. Keep your focus here, Titus. So how should we understand the passage? Well, the first is, is to follow the flow. The first argument is the easy one. It's a logical one. Just simply follow the flow of Paul's thought. The problem as he introduces it in Titus chapter 1, in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete. See, Paul doesn't leave us in doubt about the purpose of his letter or the purpose of, of Titus being there. This is why, he says, I left you there. Things are not in order. What specifically is not in order? Many of the churches don't have pastors. Many of the churches are lacking those who will give spiritual oversight to them as those who will give an account. And Paul says, so the first task is to appoint elders in every city. And then Paul gives the qualifications. It's, it's a parallel list, of course, to what we find in 1 Timothy 3, but here are the qualifications of elders. Titus, as you're thinking about the various cities whose churches need pastors, this is what you're looking for. And he says in verse 10, because, or for, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. So to get to chapter 2 and Paul say, well, the remedy then is to divide the congregation up and have them ministered in, in a kind of a niche marketing kind of way is contrary to the logical flow of what Paul's doing and teaching, isn't it? But there's also a textual argument to make here. It's not only the logical one, and I'm going to give you very just a very brief, I'm not going to give an exposition in detail of verses 1 through 10. I'm just going to walk you through the basic grammar of it because the structure is very simple. In fact, if this were, if I were R.C. Sproul, I would I would come up and write on the blackboard here, and and I can show you very simply on a blackboard. The structure here is very very simple. Paul says, "Teach what accords with sound doctrine." What is consistent with that? Imagine I'll illustrate it this way. Imagine you have a loved one that you're about to send on a long road trip. Perhaps it's a daughter or a son, and they're getting ready to go on a long road trip, and you're thinking, you know, I really want them traveling safely. So you're going to give them a good parent speech, aren't you? You're going to say, you, you need to be thinking with respect to your car about what accords with safety. Meaning your tires are to be not bald. Your brakes need to be in good working order. Your cargo, if you're pulling a trailer or something like that, it needs to be properly secured. Your brake fluid and your engine oil and all those things need to be properly leveled out. Paul's doing exactly the same kind of thing here. To me, this is what ought to happen as a consequence of you teaching and preaching to every corner of the congregation. So he employs a very simple structure, and it's this. Older men, then we have a to-be verb. Older men are to-be, and then there's a list of adjectives. Then when he gets to older women, are to-be, followed by a list of adjectives. Younger women are to-be, followed by a list of adjectives. Are you, you seeing a pattern yet? Yeah. 
See, if, I, if you had the scratching of chalk on a board, I, I think that would make it clearer. Younger men are to be. And then he says, Titus, you are to be. Then he says, bondservants are to be and masters are to be. So it's you, you don't have to be a skilled grammarian. This is not one of those sentence diagrams that gets really complex. This one's very simple. Subject you or older women, younger women, older men, younger men are to be and then an adjective. That's the structure. But you're probably thinking at this point, yes, but what about the command here for older women to teach the younger women? See, I'm reading from the ESV, and it says they, older women, are to teach what is good. Doesn't that break the pattern? It doesn't, but our English Bibles don't help us. The English Bible, my, my ESV, for example, translates that. It says, well, it's got to back up a little bit. Older men are to be. Here's the sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Series of very important adjectives. And in a moment, when we get to the last paragraph, we'll see where those adjectives come from, how they are produced in the heart and in the character of God's people. But notice in verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. It's an adjective. They are to be not diabolos. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to know that's not a good word. Not slanderers. They are to be not slanderers. They are to be not slaves of much wine. Then in the Greek, the next word is only one word, and it's another adjective. But it's a word that very likely Paul makes up. Because there isn't one that works for what he's trying to do. The word is kylodidaskos. They are to be teachers of good things. There's no command. There's no imperative. It's an adjective. It's a descriptor. That's a consequence. It's an effect, not a cause. It's an effect of the sound teaching under which they are sitting. It is not a charge to the older women. It is not a command to the older women. It is a command to Titus. And then that's followed by a purpose clause. They are, they are to be kylodidaskos. They are to be teachers of good things. And so train, so fernetso, so train the young women. And here, once again, our text doesn't help us. Our English text doesn't help us. My ESV says to love their husbands. It's another adjective, very likely another word that Paul has coined. The word is they are to be philandros. They are to be husband lovers. They are to be philotechnos. They are to be children lovers. So the pattern holds. Older men are to be. Older women are to be. And as a consequence of their chaste conduct and their godliness, they will have the effect of training the younger women to be the adjective husband lover and the adjective children lovers. Now, I am convinced, because Paul says so here, 
in verse 5 that the stakes here, brothers and sisters, are high. The cost of getting this wrong is high. Look what Paul says in the second half of verse 5. Younger women are to be self-controlled. They are to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It is a reproach upon the name of Christ if churches will not teach these things and if God's people, men and women, young and old, will not obey them. It reviles the very word of God. So the stakes are high, and I don't think I have to persuade you. I don't need to give you testimonies or illustrations from our contemporary culture to show you that this is so. I think I can stipulate that, and most of you would say, amen, we believe that. We've seen it. Now I'm convinced that 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, is a parallel passage to Titus 2. There, Paul says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as you would a father, an older woman as a mother, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Now ask yourself this. If Paul were advocating for Titus or for Timothy to fragment the congregation, have them taught separately, why would he have to advise Timothy to walk in purity with his younger sisters? If Timothy were not charged himself with actively teaching, actively serving, actively ministering to the younger women, the older women, the younger men and the the older women, women in the congregation, why would Paul need to issue this very practical admonition? Timothy, as you serve your younger sisters, bear in mind, they're not the same as your brothers. You will not minister to them in precisely the same ways. You will not interact with them socially in in precisely the same manner but it doesn't alleviate your responsibility. It doesn't undo your responsibility to preach to them, to teach to them, and to serve them in gospel faithfulness. See, that's Paul's point, both to Timothy and to Titus. So what is Paul commanding and urging upon Titus? Teach, preach, and disciple the whole body of Christ. Brother Wilson, as you set about under the help of God and by the power of his spirit to plant a church in Wichita Falls. Temptations will press upon you. Some people will be easier to minister to than others. That's just normal in ministry, isn't it? And there will be a temptation because it's easier to minister primarily to your brothers and neglect your sisters. Fellow pastors, may this be a reminder to us. May it never be the case that any sister of Christ in our congregations think they cannot come and talk to their pastor. That he will not hear her, that he will not take her seriously. That he will not pour his heart and soul into feeding her the truth of God's word. Do not let it be the case that any sister of ours would ever think that she doesn't deserve unfettered access to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the whole counsel of his word. Let's don't put our sisters in the back of the bus, so to speak. 
We want them under the best teachers we have, not the unqualified ones. We don't want them to have the dregs. We want them to have the best because they are daughters of the king. Older men, younger women, older women, younger men, preach and teach to all of them. Don't look at the body of Christ as various demographics that must be served in specialized ways. Don't look at the body of Christ in the same way that Madison Avenue would to carve them up into marketable niches or niches, depending on where you're from. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. Don't hear me say, well, David said you can't ever teach the ladies separately. I didn't say that, and Paul didn't say that. What I'm saying is he didn't mandate that. That's not what Titus 2 teaches. You know, and sometimes I've even played a word association game with people. Now, I'm going to give you a word and you, you say whatever comes to mind. Titus 2. Women's ministry or youth ministry. You know, back in my earlier years, almost, well, over 20 years ago, my days of youth ministry, we had a Titus 2 program in our youth group where we would pair a young man or a young woman with an older man or woman to kind of have coffee and disciple them. And is that what Paul's teaching? No, it's not. It's not. Now, can you do that? Well, sure. The, you may, a local church has the liberty to employ the light of nature on that issue, but there's no scriptural warrant to do that. Or no scriptural command, I should say, to do that. Now, we've considered the labor of the pastor. We, we, we've thought about the need for these church for a church to be planted and established but what is the hope here what, what, what's the hope is, is wilson as you devote yourself to the proclamation of the gospel as you make it your aim to minister to and to serve and to teach and to proclaim the gospel of jesus christ to all four corners of the congregation where's your hope Brothers, those of you who are already engaged in this work, where is your hope? On what basis can a man reasonably expect fruit from his gospel labors? I think Paul answers that in the last paragraph of chapter 2. Well, let's back up. Pick up at verse 10. He's finishing up his statement about bondservants and masters, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they, and this is not just the bondservants, the they is a more comprehensive they, referring to everyone listed in this paragraph. So that in everything they, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, bondservants, masters, even Titus himself, may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's a marvelous statement if you think about it. A gospel proclamation rooted in the covenant of redemption, a covenant in the Godhead from eternity to save a people 
for God's own possession and God sending his own son into the world because of his own eternal love so that he would die on behalf of sinful men, be crucified, dead and buried and raised from the dead. His spirit would descend upon the people of God and lead them into all truth. His word would be would be revealed to them through the ministry of the apostles. And then that foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus, the cornerstone is preached to men. And we have the opportunity to adorn that. Don't ask me to explain that. You say that it is. As God's people apply the truths of his word and live in the power of gospel grace, we're going to see this in the, in the, in the next paragraph, we have the honor and the privilege of adorning the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's marvelous. It's incomprehensible to me. Look what he says next in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And not in some ethereal, ambiguous form, but the grace of God has appeared in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all people, and it is that grace, verse 12, that trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now again, think back to Titus chapter 1. Think of the contrast. And, and Paul says, it's a mess here. It's a disaster in Crete. I'm loosely translating, you know. It's a tough place. Even their own prophets or even their own poets testify to the fact that this is, this is a, a place marked by iniquity. Even the supposed teachers of the law are marked by iniquity. Then he contrasts that with Titus and his ministry. But here, here he contrasts that with the fruit that will come to God's people when their pastor faithfully ministers the word of God to them in the power of the Spirit of God. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And Paul uses this term salvation, of course, in its most comprehensive use. He doesn't say the grace of God has appeared, bringing justification for all people. Justification only. This salvation includes also adoption and sanctification, and preservation to glory. It is the grace of God that has appeared, bringing such a salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, to renounce worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here is the hope for the church planter. 
Here is the hope for the pastor laboring day by day by day. In light of all the cultural ills around us, the temptation exists, it will exist, to seek to address specific problems. Maybe this one over here needs a letter writing campaign. Maybe this problem over here needs a protest. Maybe this one over here needs a good political candidate to address it. Maybe this, you see where I'm going. Paul doesn't exhort Titus in any of those ways, does he? Just preach. Preach what accords with sound doctrine. Preach those things that will produce good fruit in your hearers. You see, we will always be tempted to design and shape our ministries to meet our, what we perceive as the needs of our community. And further, if your focus is on the scope and the nature of the problems around you, you're also likely to be tempted to be overwhelmed and even tempted to despair in your ministry. Jesus told his apostles, the poor will always be with you. And by that, he doesn't mean don't take care of the poor. That's, that's the feature of our age. There will always be one more false teacher. There will always be one more moral issue that needs to be addressed. There will always be one more cultural ill that needs to be dealt with. So where should the focus be? On what should a pastor focus? What should a church or and a church plant make as its priority? What do we believe about the way in which the hearts and the minds and the actions of men are truly and irrevocably changed by the power of the gospel. By the grace of God poured out upon his people through the power of his spirit by the preaching of his word. You'll turn back over with me just a couple pages to your left to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's making a very similar argument to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus, a place with, you know, not dissimilar problems to Crete in many respects. Paul begins chapter 4 with a statement that the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Paul's not talking about some people out there, some random guy you've never met. He's saying, Timothy, people you've prayed over and preached to and served will depart from the faith. That's the reality. There will be false professors in every church and every church plant. But look at verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Notice Paul's use of the definite articles, the faith and the sound doctrine or the good doctrine. He's not talking about some subjective, some subjective experience of faith. He said, if you will put the faith and as confessional Baptists, we have an answer for what the faith is, don't we? We have a confession. And we'll be faithful to teach these doctrines, to put these things before the brothers and the sisters. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, 
Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, isn't that almost exactly what he said to Titus? But then Paul puts an even finer point on it here, this last paragraph in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says this, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself, immerse yourself, make it your ambition to minister the scriptures publicly. Devote yourself to the public reading of the scriptures. To exhortation. What is that? That's preaching. The good Dr. Lloyd-Jones called logic on fire. To teaching. 14, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. It's one of my favorite passages. I think back to where I was doctrinally, in terms of my skills, my abilities, my understanding, my wisdom as, as, a, as a pastor 13 years ago. And I think, bless their hearts, some of them hung with me. I don't know why. Paul says, if you will discipline yourself as a pastor in these ways, people are going to see you grow. Because the work of the the gospel, the work of God's word by his spirit is actually going to work in you. In some ways, the first recipient of the primary means of grace of preaching is the one out of whose mouth it comes. Amen, brothers? When you have the, the person that comes up to you after a sermon and says, Pastor, that one, that one kind of stung a little bit. You should have been in my study with me all week. To lay with me on that anvil as the hammer laid its blows down upon me. But that's good, isn't it? Of course, the flip side of that, for them to have seen your progress, they had to have first noticed your weaknesses and deficiencies. That's normal. That's the life of a true shepherd who's among his sheep enough and people actually can know he bleeds too if you cut him. He's weak in some of the same ways that you are. God has called him to this ministry. Now look what he says next. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing... You will save both yourself and your hearers. This is one of those other statements that's, that's, that's astounding. Timothy, if you will devote yourself to this, if you will commit yourself to this consistently, faithfully, steadfastly, you will save yourself and your hearers. Only God saves, I thought. He's speaking of means. He's speaking of means. And again, he's using the term save in a comprehensive sense. Not only that men will be justified by the Spirit of God as they hear the Word of God proclaimed, 
but they will be sanctified in the truth week by week by week. So back to Titus chapter 2, the very last verse, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. We can't say Paul's inconsistent, can we? It's pretty easy to determine as you read through the pastoral epistles over and over and over again, it's very easy to determine what Paul's focus is. It's the public means of grace. And where his hope rests is in the spirit working through the word of Christ being proclaimed as Christ, the great prophet, priest, and king speaks to his people week after week after week through the faithful teaching and preaching of his word. What is our hope as pastors? What is your hope as a congregation? The spirit of God will do what he promised to do that God will finish the good work he has begun. Preach sound doctrine. And in a very practical sense, emphasize the basics of theology. Our confession, of course, is practically very, very helpful in these areas. Preach theology proper. Preach a distinction between the law and the gospel and, and train your people how to make those distinctions. Teach a sound biblical anthropology. What is the Bible's view of man? Both in his state of innocency, his fallen state, his redeemed state, and the anticipated state of glory. Teach sound ecclesiology. Teach the, the, the relationship between a Christian and his church or her church. Teach the, the, the various ways that God has delegated his authority into various spheres, in the civil authority, in the home, and in the church. Teach those specific duties according to their places and callings. In, in your sermons, make sure that you're thinking, it doesn't have to be a template every single week, but make sure as the weeks go by that you're speaking deliberately, specifically to every corner of the congregation. Teach the distinctives and roles of men and women in your church and in their home believe that the Spirit of Christ will produce the fruit that he has promised. It's a wonderful little book by Christopher Ashe called The Priority of Preaching. If you don't have it, I commend it to you. I, I don't, it's barely over 100 pages, but it's a great encouragement to my soul. And in that book, he says this, and bear with me, it's a little bit of a longer quote, but I think it's worthwhile. Let us not just teach, but also preach. If teaching is like the signpost, which explains clearly to us where we ought to go and how to go there, preaching is like the friendly but firm shove from behind to get us started on actually going there and to keep us moving. We must teach. Exhortation, or preaching, without teaching is like someone giving me a shove without explaining why. It is an act of verbal aggression, an invasion of my personal space, a ranting and raving without explaining to me why I need to do what the soapbox warrior shouts at me that I must do. We must teach. If we do not teach with patience and clarity, there is no point preaching. But we must stop, or we must not stop with teaching. It is a fine thing patiently to explain to me so that I understand, but if you love me, you will press home to me with all the force you can muster 
that I need to act on what I now understand. I need to act today. The purpose of preaching is not preaching. Preaching is not an end in itself. We do not preach so that people will go away saying, that was good preaching. The purpose of preaching is performance, not the performance of the preacher, but the corporate performance of the whole assembly whose lives and relationships are shaped by the preached word of grace. Therefore, in our preaching, we must not neglect practical instruction about ethics, how to behave, and how to live as people under grace. It's good, isn't it? You might be tempted, Brother Wilson, to define your ministry by, by opposing every false teacher and every false teaching out there. But don't do that. I mean, certainly in, in Titus 1, one of the qualifications that Paul gives as an elder, of an elder, uniquely here in Titus 1, is that an elder must be able to teach sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. So surely there is a necessity in our ministries of being able to correct false teaching, to correct error, but that's not the same thing as saying our ministries are defined by such activity. Paul's greater emphasis is on declaring the affirmative truths of God's word, pressing them upon the people, urging their obedience and their urgent obedience to these things. Teach sound doctrine faithfully, consistently preach to those who matter most. Preach to ordinary Christians in ordinary spheres of life who belong to Jesus by faith. Teach them, exhort them, believing that according to the ordinary means of grace, that the Spirit of Christ will perfect his people in godliness and holiness, and he will preserve them until their deaths or until he returns. That's our hope as preachers. I want to draw out very briefly some, some implications of this. Some implications for ministry in general, and I think implications in particular for church planting. Number one, preach to the people in front of you. Not the people that maybe you wish were in front of you. Or the people who are on the internet. People who are on listening to your YouTube channel or, or whatever else. Preach to the older men and the older women, the younger men and the younger women who are there in front of you. In the providence of God, on any given day, that's who he has brought to you. Preach the word of God to them. Preach to every member of the congregation. As I mentioned earlier, seek to be intentional in your application to a variety of circumstances, a variety of demographics. And, and Paul's not giving us, I don't think, any you know, hard four categories and four categories only. Again, the light of nature must, must inform us as well. Maybe the younger men need to be subdivided further. Maybe the younger children, you, you, know, you know what I mean. Are you seeking to be specific in those things? Urge faithfulness and obedience in ordinary things. See, Paul's, the message here from Titus, or to Titus, is to preach to ordinary men and women. In ordinary circumstances, in ordinary spheres, in their homes, in their workplaces. 
We, we have a, a fascination. I say we, the, our evangelical culture has a fascination with the big and the bold and the sexy and the, and the loud. And we're ordinary people with ordinary lives and ordinary struggles and ordinary places and ordinary circumstances. Preach there. Because that's where our real temptations come, isn't it? For most of the people to whom you minister, and even this is true in your own home too, your greatest temptations come in interactions with your own wife, your own children, your own parents, your co-workers, the neighbor next door. That's where we live. That's where holiness is worked out, isn't it? See, people are tempted to look to the big, to the bold things, and they forsake the faithfulness in the ordinary sphere of their homes. How many times, men, those of you who've been in the gospel ministry a long time, and many of you have far more experience than I have, how many times do you find yourself telling people under your, your care, you're worried about things you can't control, but you're neglecting things that you can? Urge of faithfulness in, in what's before them today. I didn't number these, so I don't know where I am. Implications here, but fourthly, I think, exercise patience. Exercise patience. I think this is especially true to a church planter. In those early, early days, growth can come very slowly. You know, there's a reason I think Paul compared the gospel ministry to being a farmer. The farmer goes out, and he feels like he's breaking his back as he breaks up the ground. His hands are callous, perhaps even blistered. He's labored to break up the ground. He's labored to put the seed in. He's prayed for rain. He's prayed again. And then he goes out there every day, every day, every day, and there's no fruit. Nothing's come up. And just when he's about to give up, he goes and he puts his head on the pillow at night, and he gets up, and the next morning while he slept, something bursts through the ground. Proving that it was God, as Paul says in another place, one waters, another plants, but who gives the increase? It was God who gives the increase. The farmer has to be patient. You know, our modern farmers don't really get this as much because everything's now calculated pretty clearly. Put the seed in the ground, you give it X amount of water, and X amount, and in and, a and certain number of days it comes up. But it wasn't always that way. Depending on the temperature, it might be longer or shorter this year than it was last year. Depending on the circumstances in your ministry, you, you, may, you may see some fruit very quickly. You may labor long before you see much at all. Pastor, my brothers, as you think about the command, and you think in terms of you're charged to minister to a specific group of people, and you think, how do I minister to all four corners of this congregation? Don't forget your first congregation. Don't forget your first calling. See, there is a temptation to, I'll minister to everyone else, and then it comes to my own wife and my own children, I will outsource that. See, the pastoral qualifications that are listed here in chapter 1 of Titus, in the third chapter of 1 Timothy, it's only two skills, only two skills that a pastor is required to have. And we all know he's got to be able to teach. But you know the other skill? 
He has to be able to give oversight of his home. He has to be able to rule there, to manage well, to govern his own home. And, and Paul asked this loaded question. If he can't do that, why would we think he could do it in the household of God? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If he can't do it with one woman and, and a certain number of children, how do you think he's going to do it in a larger group? If he hasn't learned how to humble himself and say, Daddy's sorry. I wronged you. How will he do that in the church of God? If he has not learned how gently and sweetly to come to his wife and say, sweetie, I love you. And I think you were out of line earlier. If he can't do that there, how can he do that in the church? If he can't receive from his wife, honey, I think you were out of line. And he hasn't cultivated the humility to do that in his own home? How is he going to do that in the church of Jesus Christ? See, we need to understand the qualifications here as more than just proofs for his fitness for membership, for, for membership, for ministry. They're more than just proofs of his fitness for ministry. This is God's continuing education program for pastors. To learn how to serve. How do you take a son who's wrestling with his own sin and his own fallen condition and help him to apply the gospel there. He can't do it at home. What's the reasonable expectation that he will be able to do that with a church member? If he can't patiently, tenderly help a daughter who's struggling with her assurance of faith. How will he do that with one he knows less well? Is that a word? Is that a phrase? Less gooder? Is that better? Brothers and sisters, Brother Wilson, I commend the pastoral epistles to you. Just read them consecutively over and over and over again. Let the truth and grace of God's word and the priorities of pastoral ministry contain, these are gold mines. Saturate your thinking. Understand the necessity of this important labor. Why is there a church being planted in Wichita Falls, Texas? There are already churches there. Because there's a need, isn't there? There's a need for faithful, consistent, orthodox, biblical churches. We believe that's best expressed in confessional Baptist churches, don't we? So there's a need. Titus 1 makes it very clear, doesn't it? But also, make it your aim to minister to every corner of the congregation. As you embark on this, this endeavor to plant a church, not only to Wilson, but to those who are praying for and sending him and encouraging him, will you encourage him in that way? Brother, are you intentionally serving and preaching to everyone? Or is it just the ones that are easiest to hang out with, easiest to be around? The ones that always ask the really good questions and make me feel good about my sermons? Or is it the one that's a little more difficult? Ask the hard questions. Ask the questions that are harder for me to relate to. And persevere. Persevere in believing that as you commit yourself to this, 
as, as you devote yourself to these things, as you charge the people of God in these duties, that God will purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Amen? Let's pray together, please. Father, holy God, exalted Son, Holy Spirit, we confess our weakness and inability in these things. Lord Jesus, will you consistently preach to us through your word, even as we study to proclaim it to others? May it be that we never fail to hear it first ourselves and hear with ears that lead to obedience. Will you cultivate in us a greater and growing love and affection for all of our brothers and sisters? Not only those who are closest to our own perceived demographic, but to all of those whom you have called to yourself when your marvelous grace appeared. Grant to us wisdom, grant to us discernment. We pray for our brother Wilson. We pray for his dear wife and his children. We pray that you would guard them, that you would protect them. We pray that you strengthen their marriage. We pray that you would give our brother the grace to minister first in his own home and trust that that will not be wasted time from ministry, but that will be time preparing him for ministry. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you, brother. At this time, I'm going to ask Brother Wilson if you would come to the front. We're going to invite the ordained men, pastors and deacons, if you would join us here. We're going to lay hands on Wilson and have a time of prayer. Just come right down here. We'll, we'll do this right here in the front. And uh, I'm going to ask Brother Jason Montgomery to voice a prayer, and then Brother Matt Vincent, and then Brother Jeff Young, if you would close us in. Merciful Triune God, we come before you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This night we do desire to give you glory and honor and adoration. God, to declare your worth and your beauty, wonder of your name. humble thing to be invited to be a part of this with this great uh, church sending of a man 
to preach your word to your people. To be engaged in the planting of the church, to be engaged in faithful pastoral ministry, to be engaged as we've been exhorted this evening, to speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine, that we might see the fruitful effect in the lives of your people. Male and female, rich and poor, young and old. You might see them bear fruit. Fruit that will last. For this is why Christ came. Christ came to give himself a ransom for many. He came to give himself for sinners who were desperately lost. Sinners who were engaged in evil deeds. He might redeem for himself a people of his own possession that might reflect the glory of his own person in their faithful living. Father, we pray tonight for our brothers. We pray as he puts his hand to this plow. Oh God, that you would sharpen the spade. That it would dig deeply into hard soil at times. That you would help them to be a faithful, wide proclaimer of the gospel. That we would go forth like that sower, like scattering seeds. God, we would pray that your spirit and your word might prepare the hearts of those that you would in front of today. Let gospel seed be planted. The spirit of God would water that seed and that soil. That it would produce a harvest for the glory of Christ. Pray for our brother that in his holding firmly on that plow that he would indeed not let go. He would take his commitment, his resolve, his determination tonight. God, we pray that it would be just secured by your determination, your resolve, your purpose. God, would you just keep his hand, your hand, God, make him a faithful man. Make him a man that loves Christ, loves the Word of God, loves the church, loves the lost. How might you use our brother? How might you use him to bring about in the end harvest for your glory, harvest for the good of souls, and working all this for the good of his own soul. Bless you for him. Bless you for his willingness to go. We pray, God, not simply for him. We pray for the congregation that is already waiting for him. What a, what a joy. Not simply walking into the desert. He's walking into a place where there are people who are saying, like that Macedonian call, come over and help us. Come up to our city. Live with us, live amongst us, minister amongst us. We are 
I'm grateful for the word of God. Pray for these brothers and sisters, those with whom those of us in this room have probably not met. We ask, Lord God, that you would strengthen their desire for the word of God. Strengthen their love for one another. Strengthen their love for Christ Jesus. My day is church. Church that faithfully receives your word. That word is humbly implanted in their soul. That might have been for their salvation. Might have been for their justification, for their sanctification, for their preservation and glorification. Watch over this church. Be a fruitful church. Thank you for so many churches here tonight. We pray, oh God, there may come a day when you would see fit to leave this new work in association with other confessional churches. We rejoice in the brotherhood we have with one another. We rejoice with our associational churches. We thank you for blessing the mutual edification we are able to share with one another is a blessing and a joy. Oh God, bless you for our brothers, bless you for this family, bless you for this church we enjoy to serve, bless you for Waco Family Baptist Church. We desire to see churches planted. That is something that's planted in their own hearts. Thank you for allowing us your grace hear, see what you are doing. Come on. Our great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you and your Son have sent out the Holy Spirit into the world to form your church, plunder the kingdom of the evil one, Rescue for yourself your own dear people whom you have loved from all eternity. We thank you that our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, rules and reigns in heaven above. We thank you that he is establishing his churches here in the earth, these outposts of his kingdom and his rule and his reign, his majesty and his glory. We thank you, O oh Lord God, that you are displaying your wisdom, the building up of these churches, the gathering together of your people in local places, where your name is hallowed, where prayers are offered to you in dependence upon your strength, where your people worship your sovereign name. We ask, O oh Lord God, that you would establish that you would make this a church where Christ is head, where sinners hear the good news of a Savior who offers his goodness for them, takes their sin upon himself, that they might have life forevermore, a place where saints are built up and made more and more like Jesus Christ, the pursuit of holiness for your glory and your honor. Father, I pray for my brother, Pastor Wilson, that you would strengthen him, encourage him, lift him up. Father, there are many days ahead of excitement, of rejoicing, 
your work in this world, rejoicing in how you teach and instruct your people and grow them. There are many days ahead of, of doubt, of fear, of watching people walk away from sound doctrine. Father, strengthen our brother. Encourage him in the truth of your word. May he rest in the blood of Christ which covers him. May he work and labor, not for his glory, but because you have loved him. That Christ Jesus went to the cross, that he might have life. That he declares and proclaims a message of reconciliation between the holy God and sinners who have offended you. Father, strengthen him and encourage him in this truth. Preserve him and keep him. Use him mightily for your glory, for your name. We ask this, Father, because Christ is on his throne. We ask this, Father, because your spirit is at work. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we ask that all the with all the things that were private and private, uh, that our that our brother Wilson will devote himself continuously to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So do so moving him by your spirit that zeal for your house will heat him up. That zeal, Lord, will be accompanied uh, to agonize in prayer for the congregation, uh, to wrestle all night uh, until you bless the congregation. Lord, will you uh, open his mouth to preach? And when he opens his mouth to preach, Lord, will you help him to preach the gospel and to preach it boldly as he ought to do? Pray that you'll bless him at home. So that he can love his wife as his own body and raise his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Set a good example in everything. Lord, I pray that by your mercy he'll have joy in this service. That even though it's a labor, it'll be a labor of love for him. I pray that you'll banish from him anything Hey. 